around asking people what I should say about him to introduce him, and I got a lot of conflicting stories. <laughs> so I went straight to the source and asked how he'd like to be introduced, and he said, well, first of all, don't say anything bad, so I think I can handle that. And he said, second of all, I don't think I can go much higher than just being an old drunk and Alcoholics Anonymous, so great pleasure. I give you Sterling. I'm Sterling Watts. I'm a happy alcoholic. Hi, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to thank the committee for asking me. You know, it, it's nice to be asked to come back somewhere. I was at, uh, I came over to Huntington sometime a few years ago and spoke at the breakfast, and so I've had a chance to see some, some old friends and make some new friends, and uh, hey, that's what this deal's all about. I, I believe this is a people program, and, and uh, the way I stay sober is sharing and having you share with me, so thank you for giving me this opportunity. You know, I, I was thinking, I think I qualify to be here because uh, I'm a real alcoholic that's found a, a substitute for alcohol, and that's fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, when I found that, uh, when I found that substitute for it to work, there were some things I had to do. I had to get a sponsor, and uh, had to put some steps to work in my life. I had to get a home group, and that home group was a traditional group in Greenville, South Carolina. We meet on Tuesdays and Fridays. If you're ever in the area, we'd love to have you come uh, come and be with us. We think that's the best group in the world. Uh, and also, uh, because of that group and people that love me in that group in rooms like this and people like you, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the 25th, 1973. And for that, I'm very grateful. Also, you'll see later on in my story that I had a lot of time on a psychiatrist's couch and in psychiatric hospitals. So I'd also like to tell you right now that since that time in September of 73, I haven't found it necessary to be analyzed, hypnotized, tranquilized, or baptized. <laughs> uh, and I, we, hear, we hear a lot today, we, as I travel around, I hear a lot today people want to talk about problems other than alcohol. Well, I had a lot of problems other than alcohol before I ever drank alcohol. That's probably why I drank alcohol. I see, I'm not only an alcoholic, but I'm a hillbilly. I was born and raised up in the mountains of Virginia. I'm the only son of a hillbilly school teacher, born in the middle of the Depression, and they named me Sterling Fletcher Watts III. I don't think I had a chance from the very start. <laughs> and right away, I had this problem with identity because I never seemed to know who I was. The first 40 years... Uh, my mother taught school for 40 years, so the first up there in the mountains, and so for the first 18 years of my life, everywhere I went, I was Miss Kitty's little boy. And when I was 19, I went across the river and married a prominent farmer's daughter, and just overnight, I became Mike Jackson's son-in-law. And I moved away down to, to South Carolina to get away from all that, and I had one son. He was quite a football player, all-state in high school, Shrine Bowl, played at Clemson, and later signed with the pros. And when I got down there, I became Waldo's daddy. And <laughs> so you see, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I could stand up here and you allowed me to say I'm Sterling Watts, well, man, I thought I'd arrived, you know. <laughs> and it's necessary for me to tell you now, I know that a lot of people here in Huntington and Fairmont and Charleston just came in. They'd been out drinking a little bit and said, hey, I want to come in and 
and get spiritual and get sober, and, and they've been happy ever since. Well, I didn't get here that way. I had a lot of help. A lot of help. I had help from state troopers and judges and bosses, and, and, uh, but mainly I had a lot of help from, uh, from Al-Anon. My wife got an Al-Anon before I came to the program. In fact, I say that I came into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous when I became powerless over Al-Anon. You see, <laughs> my wife got into Al-Anon a long time before I came to AA, and uh, I tell you this because, do y'all remember the first night they ever asked you to, you'd been sober long enough, quit shaking, and they asked you to read? Man, I really felt good. I went back to the restroom and practiced. I didn't want to miss a word. And I'm sitting there on the front row just like Larry is. And the chairman said, and to read how it works, and he forgot my name and said, Nancy's husband. So, <laughs> and you know, ever since then, every time I get a little bit egotistical or think I know who I am or get to feeling my oats a little bit, there's always somebody around one of these tables to call on old what's-his-name. <laughs> and I need that. You know, as I did my four-step and, uh, and looked back over my life, uh, I became quite comfortable with the fact that I was a weird kid that grew up in a normal home. But there's a lot of people studying alcoholics now. And they came up with this thing called a dysfunctional family. Now, that sounded a whole lot better than me being a weird kid. And I went to my sponsor and I said, do you think I could have been mistaken all these years? Maybe I grew up in one of these dysfunctional homes. He said, well, I would think so. You were there, weren't you? Now, <laughs> and I got to thinking about that thing. You know, I, was at, I went to a dysfunctional school. I went to a dysfunctional Sunday school. Even my army unit I was in was dysfunctional. Everywhere I went seemed to get, the marriage I got into was dysfunctional. So, uh, you can't get away from responsibilities, I guess. Uh, now, in this, uh, you know, I, I was the kind of kid that started lying about the time I started talking. And, uh, and, and, I, and I just love to lie. And it's been a hard habit to get out of. And, uh, and I was the kind of liar that uh, not only just told you a lie, but I got the real thrill out of knowing I'd made you believe that lie. You know, I'd tell you a lie and I stayed around to make sure I had the hook in you. And I'd add to it if I had to to make you believe it. And uh, I found out later when I got in Alcox Anonymous, that's what the con men do. They stay around their enjoyment is having a hook in you. For instance, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I was raised in a very religious family, and they made us recite Bible verses before we could eat a meal on Sunday. And I was quite capable of memorizing Bible verses, but I took a lot of pleasure in making them up. And one of the verses I remember that I made up was, If a man goeth on a long journey and returneth not, he stayeth a long while. Now, You know, it's bad enough to make the scriptures up, but I can remember what I dearly loved was to see the old folks thumbing through that Bible, trying to find that verse a little tyke had found they couldn't find, they'd never read, you know. Just made me feel warm all over. Just. <laughs> and, and now in this household, there was another, you know, there's only been two perfect human beings that ever walked the face of this earth, and my sister was one of them. Uh, I had a sister five years older than I, and... Uh, she never, she was just a perfect human being. She never told a lie, never caused any trouble, made straight A's all the way through school, valedictorian in high school, uh, uh, dean's list in college, and just was a perfect human being. And right away from a young age, it's why can't you be like Elizabeth? And I, 
And, you know, I think maybe I liked attention, and I think she'd cornered the market on being good, so if I was going to get any attention, I had to be good at being bad. And I, I think probably that's what, uh, what made me be what they used to live. My teachers used to say mischievous. And, uh, but, uh, and it was kind of a mixed-up feeling in this household. Uh, everybody seemed to have an idea of what they wanted, they wanted out of me. Uh, my mother wanted me to be a Methodist minister. Bless her heart, till the day she died, she, she was still praying that I'd be a Methodist minister. And my, my daddy wanted me to be a great trial lawyer. And uh, my sister just wanted me to go away, you know. And, and I, Now, nobody ever asked me what I wanted. And what I wanted is pretty significant. We had a boy, it, it kind of uh, let you in on what my aspirations were, even at a young age. Uh, there was a young man up there about my age who's... Uh, his mother had left home, his daddy stayed drunk all the time, and he had no rules to follow, none whatsoever. Uh, he, could, uh, he could go barefoot any time he wanted to, he could swim naked any time he wanted to, he could stay out all night, uh, and he could cuss better than anybody I've ever met up to this day. And, uh, and I just loved everything about R.L. R.L. didn't even have to take a bath unless he wanted to. And I loved the way he smelled. He had that gusto, you know. And, <laughs> And, and everywhere I went, everywhere I went, it seemed like to me that I smelled like life buoy soap. Uh, mother, Miss Kitty was always washing on me. And I, I you know, I think the, I look back and, and the most sincere prayer I ever remember praying was I prayed that Daddy'd get drunk and Mom would live home so I could live like R.L., you know. <laughs> and you know, sometimes all these things don't leave you either. When you get sober, everything don't go away. I still like to go on vacation and go three or four days and not take a bath and not shave. And, and I'll make it till about when and then Donald says, is R.L. here? You know? So, but uh, I just never, I, I really loved the fact that he didn't have to obey rules. I never was one that, I, I would read the rules right away wherever I went and then I spent the rest of my time trying to get around them. I never wanted to obey them. I, I didn't, you know, and I just didn't deal well with rules. I didn't think they were meant for me for some reason. And uh, I, I didn't have a problem with alcohol as a teenager because I was, uh, I was so well known, I was so closely supervised. I'm sure I tasted it, but it wasn't significant. But shortly after graduating from high school, I enlisted in service, and I had to go down to Roanoke, Virginia, which was 55 miles away from home, to be inducted into service. That's the first time I'd ever been away that far away from home without any adult supervision. And uh, that night I got drunk and I almost died. Uh, I got sick, and uh, and uh, and a whole bit. And uh, and that was in September of 1946. And 27 years later, in September of 1973, three states away, I'm still getting drunk. I'm still getting sick and I'm still almost dying. So there has to be a certain amount of insanity that goes along for anybody to go through what I went through for 27 years just to be able to drink. And I never realized that drink was what was absolutely motivating me and moving me. But I would change my lifestyle, my circumstances, where I lived, who I lived with, what I did, but I never once addressed the fact that or thought about not drinking. And, and that, to me, is part of this insanity. You see, right away when I started drinking that night in Roanoke, Virginia, in 46, I had three things that started to take place, and they lasted, and they're very vivid in my mind because it was my first bout. Uh, I, had, I always got sick. When I got here, I weighed 289 pounds. I was a man's man. I had a tremendous capacity for alcohol. But sooner or later, I always got sick. And a sick drunk ain't popular. 
You don't invite him over to your new house to look at your carpet, I can tell you that. You don't, you know, you don't, you might, you don't lose us in the dark, you can smell where we are. And, uh, uh, you know, and it, you know, when your reputation, if I remember in 1956, I had a good friend and he bought the prettiest, it was a black and silver Pontiac and he gave it to his wife for their anniversary. And one Saturday, uh, we were out riding around and drinking and uh, I started rolling the window down. He said, not in this car you don't. And he stopped, and I got out and put my hands on top of the car and, and puked right back in the window. And, <laughs> and, and uh, now, when I first got sober, I started telling these stories, and my, my Alanon said, Listen, do you have to tell those old sick stories? I cleaned enough of that stuff up. I don't want to listen to that stuff for the rest of our life. And so I developed a word that she would accept. I say I unswallowed a lot. And uh, <laughs> it sounded better. Now, uh, I also had blackouts. And now, if you're a blackout drinker like I, were, like I was, you know the difference between backing out and just passing out. I'd go a couple of three days, have no idea where I was, what I did, and I'd just come to, and, and I spent a good bit of time early on trying to backtrack and find out where I was. That's about the only good this unswallowing ever paid off. I could look down, and I'd know I'd been over to Joe's because there's his chili, you know. And, but, but I had these blackouts, and, and uh, I also had sore eyeballs. God, I had the sorest eyeballs of any mortal you ever saw. I, you know, I can remember laying on my back and coming off a drunk, and a fly'd go by, and I'd move my eyeball, and it hurt me all the way to my hip pocket. It just nearly killed me. And and these things began to interfere with a little bit with my life. And I took a look. I took a look at this sickness, and it was becoming a problem. And uh, and I realized that Miss Kitty had a thyroid condition, and she had slightly protruding eyes. So I just was. I'd been unfortunate about everything else. So I assumed I'd in but inherited these eyeballs from my mother's side of the family. My daddy had an ulcer, had two uncles with nervous stomachs, so it made sense to me I'd inherited this sickness from my daddy's side of the family. Now, I, I didn't ask anybody about blackouts. I figured if you drank what I drank, uh, you had blackouts. And uh, so armed with all this information, uh, I came back from service in 1948 and started out on uh, a normal drinking career, if I ever had a normal drinking career. I have no idea what normal is, but at this particular time, uh, my perception of things is what I can explain to you. I realize that, that what actually, how I perceive things may not have been the way they were. I found this out later on when I went to make amends to my sister. And she was raised in the same environment at the same time, the same parents in the same uh, era. And uh, she perceived things entirely different than I did. But I realized after I got an alcoholic, it was my perception of things that, that controlled my actions. So all I can tell you is what I, how I perceive things. And I perceived myself as drinking normally from 1948 to 1962. Uh, I came back from service and immediately got a job. Uh, industry had moved into the mountains, and I got a job in a textile mill uh, on the ground floor in 1948. Immediately married my childhood sweetheart. A year later, our son came along. In 1954, a group of uh, husbands bought a, a track of land out in the woods, and we all started building homes. And uh, I got promotions on the job. I didn't lose any, lose any time off from work for drinking. Uh, and so it just looked like, and I seemed to be very popular. 
Uh, I was a member of the Elks, the JCs, the Moose, the Kiwanis, the VFW, the, uh, the Eagles, uh, anything it would have me. You know, and when, when I look back at this thing, it's amazing. I lived in a dry county, and all these places sold booze, and I'm sure that, that had something to do with it. But, but, but it seemed to be reasonably uh, responsible. I was active in church. Uh, church will always have you, you know. And, and I was superintendent of Sunday school, the largest uh, uh, Methodist church in Pulaski, Virginia, for a while. So things seemed normal. And, uh, but when I look back on my life, that period of time I was in five or six automobiles that were totally lost. Sometimes I was driving, sometimes somebody else, most of the time we had no idea who was driving. <laughs> and during that period of time on the Thanksgiving day, I had three accidents in the same day. And that day I hit the same man twice. Now, <laughs> now I didn't hit him over in the parking lot, you know, at the same time. I got him 15 miles away in the afternoon where I, after I'd hit him that morning over in Pulaski, I hit him again over in Dublin. And, and, and I, in those days you just call your insurance agent and report these things. And I remember calling in and he said, watch how drunk are you? He said, you reported that accident this morning. I said, man, I've hit him again. I'm not drunk, you know. <laughs> Give me a break, you know. Well, I, now, I told you that I'm not, I'm not popular. I, I'm just not handy with tools. I don't know a screwdriver from a pair of pliers, and I can't fix anything. I'm not a gardener. I don't have a green thumb. And uh, if I moved into... Huntington tomorrow. If I moved, as I saw it, if I moved in here, then I'd move right in the middle of a whole bunch of handymen that could fix anything, and I'd look out the window the next morning, and that guy across the street would get yard of the month. And all I ever got was like wild onion of the decade, see? And so, <laughs> right from the very start in this marriage, it started out, why can't you be like Herb, and why can't you be like Tom? And, uh, but I was used to this because it started out as a child. Why couldn't I be like my sister? And uh, I told you we bought this uh, track of land and, uh, and we were going to build these houses. And uh, all these uh, houses were supposed to be turnkey. Well, these handymen got into this thing and all of them started doing something. Some of them put in their furnace, some of them put in the gutter, the cabinets, uh, or whatever, you know. And I think that's the first time I ever really experienced impending doom. She's looking at me, and I know she's beginning to wonder when I'm going to do something, you know. Well, one day she'd gone up, it was in July, and she'd gone up to her daddy's. And uh, I noticed that not a soul had put in a mailbox on that street yet. <laughs> now, by this time, an interesting thing had happened in my life, I realize now. Any time I, I had a task that I didn't like to do, that, you know, a, a repetitious task like painting and uh, mowing the yard and, and, and having the preacher call and all this kind of thing. I had, I had assigned a certain amount of liquor to any task I didn't like to do. Uh, if I was going to paint, it took a quart. I, I'm a kind of painter, most paint, you know, I got the liquor and then I got the drop, the drop cloth and the paint. And, uh, but I'd get a quart to paint, it took a fifth to trade cars, took a fifth to borrow money, that sister and I didn't get along. I called her my two-pint sister, you know. Well, <laughs> I don't really know, I never had put in a mailbox, so I don't know how much liquor I assigned to this job, but 
It's right interesting that it's kind of alcoholic, I think, the way I put this thing in. I went down, I got a, an eight-foot pipe two inches in diameter, and in that I put another pipe inch and a half in diameter and had the head engineer weld it, spot weld it all the way up. And I came back home and I put this down in four feet of steel-reinforced concrete. <laughs> and I went down to Sears and got it the biggest mailbox they had and put Sterling Fletcher Watts III on, counting old English letters. It re and I put that down in that concrete and tamped it well. And did you alcoholics here know how it is when you work all day and you drink all day and you fall over in the bed and you're just about to go into that slumber? Only just into the twilight zone that only the alcoholic knows. Well, just before I passed off, I kind of thought to myself, she's really going to be proud of me when she comes back tomorrow. Well, next morning about 5 o'clock, my phone rang, and it was my neighbor. He said, Watts, what in the world was wrong with you yesterday? I said, why? He said, you got that mailbox in facing your house. Now... <laughs> And it's about 102 degrees in the middle of July, and I'm unswallowing, and I got about an hour to turn that thing around. And when I got through, it looked like you'd build a swimming pool and filled it up, you know. Uh, now, I was, I was a tavern drinker. See, I never did anything that got you any points with the lady folks. I like to hunt and fish and shoot pool and gamble and play golf and... and uh, she just ne I never did anything that got me any points. And, and I was a tavern drinker. I loved the dark lights and the country music and the shuffleboards and the beautiful ladies that hung out in there to dance with. And I'd go in for one beer and stay a day or two, you know. And... and and I, she got you. She got very perceptive. I, she used to. I've had her say, "Well, you almost stopped and got a beer." She knew when I was thinking about it, you know. And actually, what what had happened? We developed this thing, and I kind of referred to it as a muscular chemical reaction. When I bent a muscle to take chemicals, her mouth flew open, you know. And, and I call this stuff chin music. And I never got to drink in peace. I'd take a drink, and that mouth would fly open. So. By this time, I'd worked my way up in the mill to where I was buying uh, chemicals for one department and machinery for another department, and a lot of salesmen called on me, and they loved to drink just like I did. And I got to watching these boys, and they left home on Monday. They didn't go home till Friday. They had a whole five days, drink liquor and no chin music. So I just gave up the best job I ever had and came to South Carolina to do nothing I know today but to drink liquor. And I did a pretty good job at it. Uh, this company that hired me was a small company out of Rhode Island, owned by one man, and i never forget what he said. He gave me a new automobile and an unlimited expense account. And he explained to me that the people in the South did not know his company's name and that I was to use any amount of his expense money I wanted just to get his name well known in the South. And I, I know that he meant where I had, to, in the textile industry, where I had chemicals to sell, but I got it everywhere. The state troopers, the jails, the judges, everybody knew that. Before I was done with, he got his value out of that expense dollar, I'll tell you. You know, in those days, we didn't have uh, mini bottles or we didn't have bars. And uh, so you did everything brown bagging. And I got two cases and put it in the trunk of that Ford and ran up and down the road. And I'd pull into a textile mill. And uh, we'd raise a trunk and we'd have a few drinks there in the parking lot or we'd go around to the spring or down to the, to the golf course or the fishing hole. I had one guy down at Abbeville, South Carolina, say, you know, you called down here 19 months and we weren't sure what you were selling. said, we begin to think that you were a liquor salesman in the wrong place, you know. <laughs> well, 
And and I had a I had a trait that was uh, you know I found out after I get here a lot of good alcoholics had this is if I kept my liquor level just at the right place my alcohol level at the right place I could go two or three days and not sleep I had a great capacity for for functioning and and I could. Uh, I could play cards all night, take a shower, play golf all day, play cards all night, two or three days in a row. I evidently was a fire driver, and uh, and, and they loved this. I've had them say, well, I'd rather ride with Watts and him drunk, and I had Tom and him sober, and I'd swell up and drink a pint and take them anywhere they wanted to go, you know. <laughs> I really love to hear them say this about me. And uh, along about 1969 or 70, I'm running up and down the road selling chemicals, and I got the drunk driving award for the year up in North Carolina, about six months later, South Carolina, later in Georgia, uh, later on down in uh, Alabama, and all told, I had five DUIs and uh, maybe six, but I had five for sure and never lost my driving privileges. And uh, I know now that that was probably a very bad thing for me. You see, had I been made uh, responsible for my actions that very first time. If I'd have had to pay the consequences, you'd have a different speaker and I'd have a different story one or the other because what this did, every time I was able to buy a lie, steal, or cheat and get out of that deal and, and beat, the, beat the establishment, I just felt like God. They can't stop me. You know, the rules weren't made for me, and I'd get out of jail, go to bootleggers, get a half a pint, drink it, and throw it out on the courthouse lawn just Prime tires right out of town. I was truly roaring through people's lives just like that tornado they talk about. Uh, somewhere along in here, my health, uh, I told you I, I blew, blossomed up real heavy, and uh, so I i went to uh, get an insurance exam. The company was going to fire me if I didn't, and I think the reason I didn't go, I had an idea I might not pass, and I remember going in, and they took my uh, blood pressure. And I started to roll my sleeve down and leave, and here the lady came back in uh, with the uh, oxygen. I said, what's that? Well, she said, your blood pressure's so high, you're in stroke zone. I said, man, how can that be? I just came in here, get an insurance exam. <laughs> and if my blood pressure's that high, I ought to have some symptoms. She said, well, you should be dizzy. Well, I'd been dizzy for over a year, you know. <laughs> and, and I'd been having this trouble, you know, getting two bridges. Sometimes it'd be three bridges, and I'd have to stop till I could get them down to one. And, and to show you how sick I was, I came home tickled to death that it was my blood pressure causing all this and not anything to do with my drinking. And, and it's just amazing. Well, along in here somewhere, and, and a lot of this has just been what's been told me, somewhere along in here, uh, she got in touch with AA and they dragged me to some meetings and I'm not sure exactly how many meetings we went to and whether we always went to AA or not. We might have gone to the Automobile Association because she's sick as I was. But uh, And, uh, you know, finally, well, I met a little old guy named Squire Jones. Squire's dead now and he was an aggravating little, he was just an aggravating AA member. He never said much to you. He'd see me and I'd be fat and it's in the summertime and I'd be sweating and he'd say, why didn't you wait till wintertime when it was cold to get drunk? And I could have just killed him, you know. But he was always there. And so one day the chin music just got so bad I couldn't stand it and I said, I'm going to call Squire, get this thing straight. And I picked up the phone, called Squire. He got in his car and started to cross town. I got in my car and left town. So... And, and he came across there, and he's kind of frugal, and after he'd made that trip, I really, he, he kind of 12-stepped Nancy. 
And evidently she talked to him about me some, about how particularly about how bad I shook. And but this time I was shaking so bad, man, now I could thread a sewing machine. It running wide open, you know. And she, <laughs> what what she got out of this thing was that if I'd take this honey and Cairo syrup and orange juice, that I'd be all right. And I'd come home about half drunk, and she'd stand there in the door, and she'd shove three tablespoons full of this honey or Cairo down my throat, and hand me this concoction to drink, and I'd drink it down. And I'd head down to my clothes hamper where I had my vodka hid, and when I'd get it out, I'd be so stuck together, I could hardly get it in there. <laughs> you know... We all know AA messes up your drinking. If you come in here and get a head full of AA and you go back out there, it messes up your drinking. Well, that daggone honey didn't do a lot for mine either, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, that didn't work, and uh, but that didn't stop Nancy. She got a hold of a guy who'd uh, he tried AA, had a job just like mine, and it, AA didn't work for him, but he went to a psychiatrist and he got all well. And off I went to the first trip to the psychiatrist, and that's a whole other story, a couple of hours. But I do know, I came, two things I realized today. It's got to take place with the, any psychiatric help I might have gotten. One, I had to need it. Well, I didn't need psychiatric help. I needed Alcoholics Anonymous. And secondly, I had to tell him the truth. Well, the truth wasn't in me. I had enough Miss Kitty stories, I could still be on his couch, I can tell you that. And... But I'd tell him these stories, and then he'd get through, and we'd leave, and then finally he said, you know, it's funny, they'd say, the next time he acts up, and there would use drunk around me, he said, the next time he acts up, I'll put him where I can watch him more closely. Well, we didn't have a detox, and we didn't have any treatment centers. So we had a, every town's got one, we had a place for the emotionally disturbed, and so... Off I went to this place, this hospital for the emotionally disturbed. And it's a funny thing. I went to that place at least six times. I've been over there in the back of a pickup. I've been in the trunk of a car. I've been in, the, in, the, in an ambulance. Every time dog drunk and drunk does not appear on my medical record. I had uh, schizophrenia, hypertension, paranoia. You know, I guess that the prices they was charging, they just didn't want to put down drunk. I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, now I didn't know that first time over there after about five days, I kind of came to like I always did. They'd fed me and I felt pretty good and I'm in this uh, occupational therapy class. Well, you know, I'm not told you I wasn't handy with tools. Well, I learned they were making these leather watch bands. And I learned to make these leather watch bands, pretty watch bands. And, and I could make three in one hour. And the next best person in that class, it took them at least three hours to make one. I was popping out those watch bands. If they hadn't run out of leather, I'd still be over there. I can tell you that. <laughs> and, and I remember along about this time, Nancy came to see me and she said, you know, they're going to be wondering where you are. You're liable to get fired. I said, don't worry about it. I can stay on here as a head occupational therapist because I'm, I'm head and shoulders better than anybody else in that class, you know. And uh, they had another thing there. If you'd been, most of the ladies, most of the ladies were in this emotionally disturbed thing, and, and they were taking electric shock treatment. And it made them a little nervous. We, you know. And, uh, and and if you'd been there, uh, you got, if you'd been good all week, you got, you got a reward. And what it's amounted to, you gathered up in the lobby, and they let you go on a field trip. And they gave you a peanut butter sandwich, and you got to hike over to Kmart. Now, all these ladies are very nervous, and they all smoke. 
and they can't be trusted with matches. I had the matches. And you know, I can remember thinking when I'm get over in the parking lot and anybody want to smoke, I'm standing there and I made them get in line to light the cigarette, you know. And, and I'm beginning to think, you know, they really have found out what I'm capable of. And I kind of felt like I was in officer's candidate school. They were, you know, I'm in leadership training and I felt good about it. I went home to tell Nancy the good news, you know. And, but, you know, to show you, it was six months after that. To show you how sick I was, it dawned on me that really what had happened here, I was 44 years old and I'd worked my way up to keep her the matches in a nut house, you know. <laughs> really. Well, I, you know, things are getting worse and I'm running out of stuff to do and, and, uh, she looked at me and she said, well, you haven't tried being rehabilitated. I said, well, we don't want to miss anything, you know, so. <laughs> so we got a place in South Carolina called, uh, down, uh, it's, uh, Palmetto Center and, uh, it's run by the state and, uh, I went down there and I got the most, uh, the, the biggest resentment I've ever had in my life. You see, I got in there, I still had a job, but I had no insurance. But because I had a job, I was going to have to pay them $600 for this 28-day stay. Now, the rest of the people in there had no jobs, and they were wards of the state. They were there free. We had a doctor, and he just locked up his practice. He's in there for free. And, I, boy, I was mad about that. And, and they told us, they said, we don't sponsor AA, but we allow them to come in, and, and if you want to go over on Thursday night, you can go. Well, I went over, and I thought y'all were the sickest bunch of people that I'd ever seen in my life. Now, this is what I heard. These guys had driven 50 miles to tell me their troubles, and I'm out there so sick it's cost me $600 to get straightened out. Now, what, what made me think they were telling me their problems and troubles? There was a young man spoke one night. He didn't look a day over 25 or 30 years old, and he said that he couldn't take one drink without getting drunk. I never felt so sorry for anybody in my life. <laughs> my God. I could just sit there picturing somebody taking one drink and getting drunk. I said, this can't be. And, and I wrote his name down. Because I knew that when we got out of there, if I could get a hold of him and keep him buying, I think I could keep him drinking for three or four weeks. And I was going to look him up. Well, thank goodness I didn't do that. But uh, they told me an interesting thing. When I got ready to leave there, they said, go back to Greenville and don't drink and we think you'll be all right. Now, but this time I kind of suspected that. And... Uh, but this, you know, I think the first time I really believe, I know that God was working my life all the time or I'd have been dead, but I think my recovery started getting my attention at that particular time with that big resentment because because I'd paid $600 for that cotton-picking treatment, I said, I'm going to do what those fools say to do and try to get my $600 worth. That's the first time I'd ever tried to go without drinking for any length of time. And so I went back home and for six months, five or six months, I didn't drink. And that's all I did. I just took liquor out of my life. Now, I'm living proof of what happens to a real alcoholic when you take liquor away and put nothing in. No God, no program, no AA, no fellowship. Just take liquor away. And I tell you, it's a miserable, it's a miserable uh, situation. And if you've not gone through it, you don't have to. Because I can tell you what happened. I was full of hate. 
I was just full of hate. I got a glass about this big, and I filled it full of iced tea, and everywhere I went, I'd take that glass and let you see it, and I'd say, poor little old me, 44 years old, and never drink again. I said things like, let's get her milk and cookies and go to bed, you know. Because <laughs> I thought my manhood was gone when I could no longer drink. I just thought everything that I'd ever done that was enjoyable, what, what I did when I was drinking. That never dawned on me that everything I ever did I was drinking, you know. Well, but anyway, and, and I, I hated everybody. I hated you if you could drink and not get in trouble. And I hated you if you could not drink and have fun. And I just was so full of hate. And uh, had I not gotten drunk, I would have committed suicide. I did get drunk, and that started to appear in my life when I drank what I refer to as zombolically. I was just a zombie. I didn't know whether I was going or coming. A simple, easy way, short way to explain it, I'd kindly come to when I put my hands on the steering wheel. And if I looked down and I'm dressed up like I am now, I knew I was going out. Had no idea where I was going, but I was going out. So I'd back out of the driveway, go around the corner, check in that Cono Motel to have a couple of drinks to steady my nerves and see where I was supposed to be going, and you know the rest of it, how long I stayed there. And then if I took hold of that steering wheel and I looked down and I'd been sick all over myself and had unswallow all over me, then... Then I, I knew I was coming in. I didn't know where I'd been or how long I'd been, but I knew I was coming home, and it was just a miserable situation. I did came back from Augusta, Georgia sometime in September of 73 and went back into what Nancy referred to as my, my rat hole. I don't know how long I stayed back there because at that time Nancy was visiting relatives. Now, she didn't have any relatives, but she was always gone somewhere when I was around there. And uh, But she... Somehow, I, I never want to forget this particular time uh, when I came to or whatever I did because I, I remember that smell of the drunken liar that I'd been laying in back there for five or six days. I remember that clammy sweat and my clothes stuck to me, all the miserable things, and I couldn't walk. I, my legs wouldn't, wouldn't work. And, and I, worst of all, liquor quit working. I, when I could get a drink down after several tries, nothing happened, and I panicked. You see, liquor had been my, my solution to everything. And when liquor didn't work, I went berserk. I didn't know what to do. I was scared to death. And I just dropped my head over my, my hands and I said, my God, nobody knows. She said, AA knows. She happened to be standing there. We went to a meeting that night. I don't know what went on at that meeting last night, that night, but I think that's the first time that I ever got any, any time serious with me about drinking. You see... Uh, we give a chip, a desire chip back home. Now, I told you we went to some meetings way back there with Squire and different people, and when they'd give out the chips, whoever took me would hit me, and I'd jump up and take a chip. If they'd hit me six times, I'd have gone right through the medallion. I, I couldn't have cared less. After all, they'd, they'd listen to my stories, and they'd give me a donut and some nice coffee. But this night, I didn't take a chip, and she asked me on the way home why, and I said, because if I don't get a drink tonight, I'll die. So I must have been thinking about it, and uh, I did get a drink down sometime that night, but I'm not sure when, and that was on the 23rd. Now, this is another interesting thing that's important to me, is I, for whatever reason, don't, I probably didn't have another drink after the 23rd, but I wait two days to celebrate my dry date, and I have no idea really why. I do know this, I think God had to do it. I was too sick to even think about it. But I think, had I not been sure that I had a good, honest, dry date. I'm the kind of guy that if I stayed around here a little while and thought I'd made you all believe that and it really wasn't true, I'd have gotten so egotistical over making you believe a lie, I'd have never made it in this program. So I wait two days and I celebrate September the 25th, 1973, and 
and I can tell you this, that since that day, in September of, uh, of 1973, life has opened up to me that I can't believe. I cannot believe that a man can live and be as happy, joyous, and free as I am today. And I mean, I'm freedom. I, I don't have. I'm freedom from bondage. I don't have to worry about the drink. I have very little stress in my life when I do the things you all have taught me to do. Uh, my life is an open book. There is nothing tonight that I know of. Absolutely nothing that's ever happened in my life, and many things that I've even thought about that I have not discussed with God as I understand Him and another human being. And that makes me to have my life just as an open book. And you know, used to, if I walked in the room and I heard you over here whispering my name, I went berserk because I didn't know what you knew. And today if I hear that, I want to know what you know because I want to clear it up. I want to have, have all my, uh, my cards out on the table. And you've allowed me to do that. And I don't know of any other place, any other, any other way that a drunk like me gets the opportunity to come and straighten out his life, bring everything in order, get everything in order, and, and be able to get from here to here. I just don't believe there's any other way that a drunk like I can do that. I'm not so sure that people that aren't drunks can do it successfully other places. I went back and just took a look one time when I got to thinking about all the miracles that I'd seen in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're here. They're here, I tell you. And, and I got to looking at the guys I'd gone to school with in high school, my peers back then. Now, some of them have been more successful financially. Some of them have been more successfully seemingly spiritually, uh, maybe even healthier. A few of them might even be better looking, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that none of them that I know of have the whole package that I've been able to get here in Alcoholics Anonymous just by doing a few of the simple things you all told me to do and by sharing with other people how I got these things, they just seem to keep growing. And, and, and I can't believe that, that Alcoholics Anonymous, I know that this is a gift, this sobriety I've got is a gift. And, and with every gift, I cherish this gift. And I think there's a lot of responsibility comes with this gift. I think I'm responsible to be here, be in my home group, or wherever else I can be. I believe the book says get on the firing line and be there when a newcomer comes in and hand this thing over to him out of the book just like I got it. No additions, no deletions, not adding any chapter in there Sterling sees it. Just absolutely, absolutely handle it over just like it was, it was written and presented to me by my sponsor. And, and you know, when, you, when I take a look at that, if it's God's will for me not to drink, there's a lot of things that I have to do, and that keeps me pretty busy. And I do believe it's God's will for me not to drink. And, and you know, I'm living proof that just because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that you don't have to do everything right. Uh, when I got here, you said, oh, you had to have a desire to stop drinking. I had no such desire. I had a desire not to have to listen to chin music. I wanted to learn how to drink and not have state troopers messing with my driver's license, and I didn't want to be unswallowing. I thought I could listen to you. You were the experts. I could listen to you and find out how to do these things. Uh, you said get a sponsor. The way I got a sponsor, I think, is indicative of how my mind worked. There's no guy sat there and said he'd been sober 29 years. Well, I knew I'd talk to him, and he convinced me he was an alcoholic of my type, and I knew he an alcoholic of my type couldn't stay sober 29 years, and he had you all believe in that. And I knew if he's that good a liar, I want what he had. And so, uh, and and uh, and the old man couldn't the old man couldn't drive, and I had to drive him. I drove him around the first six eight months of my sobriety, 
And everywhere we'd go, he'd speak, and they'd pick up a chip, and I'd watch whoever got the, the desire chip or the 30-day chip. When it was over, I'd go up and put my arm around him. I'd say, man, you keep coming back. This thing really works. Between me and that speaker, we got almost 30 years in this thing. <laughs> this is the end of side one. Stop your recorder now and turn the tape over. There's one thing I did, I always did, I always went to meetings, and I think that's very important. It's very important that you go to meetings, and, and anybody I sponsor today, I absolutely, it's a requirement that they go to meetings, and I say that because it's in my experience, in my own recovery, uh, no matter what my attitude went, what my attitude was, as I sat in AA meetings, things begin to happen, I begin to change. We had, for instance, we, you know, when I got here, they did a foolish thing. I hope they don't do it in your group. They said, has anybody got anything they want to discuss tonight that's bothering their sobriety? Well, I had already, with my keen mind, watched this situation take place. If an old boy had a lot of trouble, if his mom-in-law was coming to live with him or his house burned down or uh, he'd had a wreck and killed his uncle or something, everybody got around him and gave him all this love at the end of the meeting. Another old boy come in and say, man, I hit the lottery, I won a lot in a crap game, I got me a new Mercedes and brought my wife a fur coat and we're going to Hawaii. They'd say, watch him, he's going to get drunk. So I had, I had some of the most God-awful stories you ever saw. Probably none of them true, but I'd pitch them out there and y'all talk about them for the whole meeting and I just thought that was fantastic, you know. And one night I'm out there and I love... I'm out there telling this story, you know, uh, right before the meeting, and I got about 10 or 12, and if you're, a, if you're a real con man, I had them charmed. I could tell by their eyes, and I'm laying this on them, you know, and tell them all this stuff that went on. And that old sponsor came up behind me, and he said, Boy, are you praying like I told you to? I said, Yes, sir. He said, You're a damn liar. Now, how'd he know? And it wasn't none of his business. <laughs> it wasn't what between me and my higher power, but he'd insulted me in front of probably the most attentive group I'd had in a long time. And I don't even think I went in the meeting that night. I jumped in that car and went straight home. I've never been so mad, and I prayed that night. I prayed that old man get drunk. That was my first AA prayer that I remember, and I meant that thing. And, and, but I've been praying ever since. It, it took different things to get my attention. We had another old lady there in that, in that group, and she'd been sober, sober longer than dirt. And she, she was the kind of woman, I hope y'all got one, she had answers to questions I never had even asked, you know. And she always answering your questions, and she'd say, here, take my number, and before you take a drink, if you think about it, you call me. I'd say, you gave me that Tuesday. Take it again, honey. You might have lost it. Here's my number. You call me. So one day I'd been out on the road, and I don't know how long I'd been out there all week, and I don't know how much of this is true, whether I was being a smart aleck or whether it was true. But I stopped at, uh, at the rest area at the interstate and I called Taylor and I said, all this has happened and I've already called home and my wife's mad at me and my customers haven't done anything they're supposed to do and I got seven liquor stores to pass and I can't pass them without stopping to get in a bottle. And you said, call you, now what you want me to do? She said, where did you say you were? I said, I'm at the rest area at the interstate. There was a little silence. She said, go out in the median and strip off naked and stand there till they take you to jail. Now, <laughs> and I 
I said, that daggone old woman's crazy. And I hung that phone up, jumped in my car, and passed every one of those liquor stores, see? <laughs> now today, today we know what happened. You see, this is why I stress it's important that you go to your home group. Now, as crazy as I was and as bad as my attitude was, I'd been going to that home group regularly and Taylor had been there and she read me like a book. She knew what I was trying to do was to find a situation where I could circumvent the rules, find some kind of a situation you all didn't have covered and say, see there, I, these not going to work for me. And what Taylor really did, she stole my slip. And, and a lot of people, I was a great slip, slip planner. And thank God a lot of people stole my slip. And, 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 and I'm thankful for that. There, there's people went out and drank and I didn't have to because I learned from them and I'm thankful for that. One night I'm sitting back there and it dawns on me life's better in my house. I'm not getting this program. It's not for me and I'm probably not going to get it, but you've got it. And then you're sincere. It's working for you. And you're the nicest bunch of people I've ever seen in that group. And I said, hey, you know... I want my best shot. I'm going to do everything they tell me to do exactly like they tell me to do it, and I'm going to prove to them it won't work for me. Now, if there's anybody out there tonight that's tried to convince them, well, maybe you just want to try that. Just try that one time. You see, I got to li- they said to listen. Well, I'd hit the door talking. I hadn't bothered to listen since I'd been there, so I started listening. And they started telling things very eerie things, how they would be somewhere they hadn't planned to go, and something good would happen. And, and it would be great in their lives and people just smile and say, my goodness, isn't it great how God's working in your life? Well, now you see, strange things have been happening in my life. And I, that's why I believe that if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you go every night, things are going to happen in your life. And, and I had some strange things happening. I'd planned one of these slips. I was going to get up the next morning on Saturday morning and take my car down to Sears and when I was going to have it serviced. And while it was up on the racks, just around behind Sears was the coldest beer in Greenville. And I'd never tried any light beer, and that sounded innocent enough to me. So I, had, I sat there at that meeting, like, like right on the front seat like this young lady, and I had that mug of beer on top with the frost running down. I didn't hear what the speaker said. And when I got ready to leave, I met a guy named Charlie Brown from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Never seen him before or since. And we talked a little bit, and uh, he had the same kind of job as I had, and he said good night, and I went home, went down to Sears, I ran my car up on there, and I started to that beer joint, and there stood Charlie Brown. We talked a little while, and when about the time we got through talking about stuff I didn't want to talk about, but he's there, you know. They picked me on the shoulder and said, your car is ready. He said, would you take me out to the Alano Club? And I never got around to having that, white, that, uh, that beer. And I explained this to them. I said, this is an eerie feeling. And they said, gosh, isn't it great how God's working in your life? So see, really what happened, I hung around, and you all put up with me, and you were patient and tolerant enough that you shared your God with me till I could find the God of my own. And I'm so grateful for that. And I didn't know I'd found God till you told me I'd found God. And sure enough, I started looking. And of course, I got with my sponsor and we went through the steps and, and he took me by the hand and took me through all the steps just as the book said to do. And I'm always thankful for that. And I learned a lot in those steps. I learned a lot about love and trust and patience. But the main thing I learned in those steps was about me. And I didn't know I didn't know about me. I didn't know what my capabilities were, what my limitations were. And I learned I may not be a talented fellow, but all I have to do today is the very best I can do with what God gave me to do with. And that that made me more comfortable. I don't have to be the best at everything. I can just be me and you accept me. And and that's, that's why I love you so much. That's why 
I feel so good when I'm with you. I, I don't have to tell you I'm something I'm not. And you know, I used to wonder what... I spent tons of time trying just to be what I thought I should be. And I had to lie about all of it because I was never what I thought I was supposed to be. And this kind of helped set me free. And uh, I'd been sober, I don't know, seven or eight years, and I'd been uh, into service. I'd gotten into service. I'm sponsoring people. Uh, I'd been GSR, DCM, uh, state treasurer. Uh, I looked like an AA poster child. And, uh, <laughs> but there was something about you, some of you, that you had something I knew I didn't have. I could just tell by the way you act and the way you looked. And I went to my sponsor and I said, Jim, I just don't have it. What am I going to do? He said, get back in the book and see if you can't find what you need. Now, I'd been to two or three, I'd been to a continuous book study over two or three times. I'd been to two Charlie and Joe book studies. Uh, uh, I knew the book. But I'd never been back in the book and using it as a textbook to find something in there that I needed to make me better. And when as I was looking through there, I found a lot of the things. One of the things I found was I had not done six and seven properly, particularly seven. I had more or less turned my drinking over to higher power, and I took care of everything else. I had not gotten down on my knees and humbly said, God, just stripped myself off naked and said, I can't handle any of this mess. I've got to have you to help me with every facet of my life. I, can't, I just can't handle it by myself. I'd never really done that. I was trying to handle everything else and, and, and not turning it all over. I found that. And also I found at the end of chapter 4, and I'm sure I'd seen this many times, but it jumped out at me. It, jumped, it said, He will disclose Himself if, if you draw near to Him. And uh, I began to think, where, I, where would I go to be near God? And you see, I'm a realist. And i got to see things. And, and i got to touch skin when I'm thinking of my God. And, and where is that? That's here at Alcoholics Anonymous. I come here and I see His handiwork. I see the blind, see the lame walk. I see it all right here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And another thing, I, I have had, you know, I've been places and, and my spiritual condition was pretty good and, and I, I'd been praying and meditating like I'm supposed to and things were going on pretty good and I'd be a place and it would just seem like there was a... One of my prayers every day is, God, if you've got some human work that needs to be done and my spiritual condition is good enough, allow me to do it. And I've been in those places where I had a, some human things to do that I felt God meant for me to do, and it was a great feeling. And, and the only messages that I've ever gotten have come from other alcoholics. You know, and so that's why I come to Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I love to come. You see, I'm just checking in here to get my messages. And if I go out on the road and I don't come by my message center, I don't get my messages, and boy, I begin to notice it. I notice it right away. So I'll be forever grateful to you for, for being able to not only get me in touch with God as I understand Him, but showing me how to stay in touch with God as I understand Him. I love that 11th step. It tells me what I need to pray for, just for the will... For His will for me, the knowledge of His will for me, but it puts another kicker in there. When I know what His will is, more than likely I'm not going to have the power to do it. And I need to pray for that power. And I'm the kind of guy that needs that power because I've looked back, and it's not that I don't know what to do. It's not that I don't do what I know to do. And I need that power in my life to show me to do what I know to do. I need that discipline that gets into my life when many times during the day I say, Thy will not mine be done. Uh, I, uh, I've had more trauma since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous than I ever had when I was drinking. 
Uh, one of the big traumatic things in my life is death. I never was a, I was the kind of uh, drunk that couldn't handle death. And when my mother died, I was drunk. <clears throat> Made a complete ass of myself. When my daddy died, I was drunk. Made a complete ass of myself. I had no idea how to handle death. And I've been sober 10 years, and my wife of 35 years, my Al-Anon of 10, dropped dead very suddenly. And three months later, my sponsor died. And about six months later, my only sister. And I'd have never been able to get through those things. I could not have gotten through those things. And you see, I'll always remember this. My sponsor made me talk over everything with him. If I was going to buy a lawnmower, I had to talk to him about it. And I used to fuss about this. I'd say, I'm a grown man. And he used to tell me, well, when the chips are down and the major decision comes, you'll, you'll talk to me about it. And that day when they came out of the emergency room and I'm thinking they're coming to tell me the room that my wife's going to be in uh, recovering to get her sugar straight, they come to tell me she's passed away. And the first thing I did was call my sponsor. And within 20 minutes, that room's full of AA people. You won't find that anywhere else. And I, I got the power, I got the power to get through these things because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and attached to this power. I believe there's enough power in Alcoholics Anonymous to get me through situations. There's not enough liquor distilled in the world to get me through. If I'd have started to try to drink my way through all that, I'd have been dead, or I'd have been insane, or, or something. And yet the power from Alcoholics Anonymous was here. Now, I had seen the old-timers, not had they told me, but I had noticed them, that when they had trauma in their lives, they doubled up and tripled up on their AA meetings. And that's what I did. I got as involved as possible in Alcoholics Anonymous. And after my wife died, I was the most lonely human being you've ever seen. And I don't know whether any of you have ever lost a mate like that, but it is, a, it is a real lonely situation. And by going to Alcoholics Anonymous, I met a, a lovely young lady, Donna, uh, who was supposed to be here earlier this weekend and, and make a talk with us, but she's suffering from a degenerated disc and couldn't make it. But, but Donna and I have a great, a great life today. And, uh, and uh, you see, God's been good to this old drunk. I've had uh, 10 years with an Al-Anon, and I've had uh, 11, 12 years now with, uh, uh, with an alcoholic, and, and life's been good for one reason. In both situations, both situations, we put Alcoholics Anonymous and God first. And we get together every morning, and we invite God into this marriage for that day. I did it with my Al-Anon, and, I do it with, uh, and we do it with uh, Donna today. And what this does is 10 o'clock in the morning... When you get that little muscle standing out on your neck and, and the heat flares up and you want to say something bad, you know, uh, you remember that God's been invited in. And on top of that, Donna has this little thing that works so well with us. She looks at me when I'm getting ready to just explode and she'll say, I'm Donna, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and that reminds me of how we act at meetings. And so I just smile and I say, okay, you know. So... It's a good life, and, and uh, we do pray and meditate each day together. And, uh, and, and I wouldn't take anything in the world for, for these two things, if nothing else. The many things that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, it showed me how to have a good, healthy relationship with another human being, being able to, to grow. See, she's got uh, coming up on 15 years sobriety, and I've got like 23, a little over. And, and so I'm at a different place in sobriety. She needs a program, and I need my program, and we're developing one together. But we have the freedom, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, to allow each of us grow, grow in the direction that we need to grow in without any jealousy, 
without any envy. And, and this is great. Uh, this is real great. And we have a we have an alcoholic home. I hope you have one. We she sponsors some people, and I sponsor some people. We got two lines coming into the house, and and our day will start up like. Uh, you know, the phone will ring, and over here is one that wants to get out of a relationship, and over here is one that wants to get in a relationship. And this one wants to get in a relationship that one's getting out of. This one, <coughs> this one wants to quit his job, and this one's looking for a job. Uh, you know, this one over here wants to commit suicide, and you want to kill this one over here, you know. <laughs> but, and, and so, there's not, there's not a whole lot of ways that you can, you can get into yourself, you see. Uh, I always played hooky. Uh, when I was uh, the second day of school, uh, I played hooky. And we went in a cave and toasted apples. And all my life, that started the time I always played hooky. And, and, and there comes a time now when I want to be R.L. I want to be mean. I, I get tired of praying. I think God's forgotten about me. I get up in the morning. I say, I'm not reading. I'm not meditating. I'm having a bad day. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to be responsible today. I'm tired of this being everywhere I'm supposed to be on time. And to heck with this responsibility, I'm going to be meaner in hell all day. And about that time, the phone will ring. And it'll be one of these guys I'm sponsoring, and he'll tell me something great that's happened in his life. And I'll say, gosh, that's wonderful. And then the phone will ring over here, and somebody's asking me to come to West Virginia and talk. And I'll tell you what AA's done. They've made it impossible for me to have a whole lousy day. <laughs> it's an impossibility. Uh, I told you about that one son I had. Uh, uh, he, uh, well, I'll tell you, I just retired December the 31st, and uh, I thought, I, I went into practice prior to that. I was frightened of it, and, and all these things that I'd been telling everybody, this too shall pass, and all, I got caught up in it there. And all of a sudden, I realized, well, you know, what does the book say? And so I just, I said, God, you know, uh, let your will work my life and I, and I didn't know what I was going to do and I'm busier now I can't find time to do all I got to do and, and most of it's in AA and that's wonderful three new guys have come into my life and, and I'm working getting them through the steps and, uh, and I wasn't so worried, much worried about me taking a drink as I was worried about Donna taking one I can tell you but it, it's working out real well and uh, you remember I told you I had that one son well he had two children and I'd have never known those grandchildren or been able to love them or anything else if it hadn't been for Alcoholics Anonymous because when I came to you, I didn't even know what love was. And uh, my son's not all involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's proud I'm sober, uh, but he's probably been to three meetings in the whole time I've been sober. And those been. And so sometimes when I see people celebrating their anniversaries and their whole families there, I get a little bit envious, you know. But And I tell you this because uh, not long ago, that little granddaughter came to me and she asked me if I'd come over to school and talk to her class on alcoholism. And, and it really made me feel good. And, uh, and I went over to school, and, and I'm standing there in the lobby, and this little old gray-headed principal came up to me and looked me right in the eye and said, Are you Allison's grandfather? Now, <laughs> so you see, I may, I may never know who I am, but tonight I know what I am. I'm an alcoholic that's found a substitute for alcohol, and thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.
thank you very much, Sterling. Appreciate you coming down and talking to us. On behalf of the Tri-City Convention, we'd like to present you with this gift. Looks like a leader, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get in here quick like Okay, so just checking to see if I'm. I don't think I'm in the paper. I'm determined. We're going to see what this is. <laughs> That's cute. I'm sure it fits on here the directions. I'll read them after I've tried them out. <laughs> I don't know if you notice or not, but uh, we keep things as simple as we can around here. Pass it on was our theme last year, and it's a theme this year. All right. Uh, I'd like to, before I forget it, I, we need to really and truly thank all those that made cookies and cake and brought all the refreshments for the hospitality room. I wish that you'd give them all a big hand because I don't know who they were, but... <laughs> Tomorrow morning we're gonna have a famous speaker from Lynchburg, Virginia at 9.30 in the morning and a famous lady to chair the meeting. I won't mention her name or his name, but you're gonna miss something if you're not here tomorrow morning. Uh, the 53rd anniversary of the Breakfast of Alcoholics Anonymous will be held at the Marshall University Student Center. The speaker there is at 1045 on Sunday morning, June the 1st. Uh, we had our date set for this a year ago, and I don't know how the thing came up, but we had a conflict, but I don't think that neither one of us need to apologize, but if you can, the speaker here Sunday's going to be at 9 o'clock Sunday morning. You still will have time to go down for the breakfast speaker, so please try to support both if you can. And uh, we do have an anonymity statement. There may be some here who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need to always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press rate on film. Thus, we respectfully ask that no AA speaker or indeed any AA member be identified by full name and published or broadcast reports. The assurance of anonymity is essential in our effort to help other problem drinkers who may wish to share our recovery program with us. And our tradition of anonymity reminds us that AA principles will always come before personalities. That's all that I have, and uh, I'm gonna turn it back over to the chairperson. Thank you very much. It's all yours. Thank you, Jerry. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Laura Chapman. Laura Chapman, there's a telephone call for you. Uh, some, in the back? In the back room. Laura Chapman, please. Okay, thank you very much. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever.
We're going to have the drawing now of the socks. Good part,